It's a pleasure to be with Richard Budger today, and Richard is the Chief Medical Officer for the London 2012 Olympics and Paralympic Games. I'm hoping you'll find out some other interesting things about Richard in the podcast, so let's jump in. Hi, Richard. Hi there. Thanks for being involved today in the middle of your very busy schedule. I understand you've got less than 365 days to go until the end of your big job. Yes, in uh, exactly a year's time, the Paralympic uh, uh, Games will just have finished, so um, in a year's time it will all be over. Tell us um, what's going on at the moment. What are the main jobs for the Chief Medical Officer for the London Olympic Games? Yeah, well, our main focus is the test events at the moment, which are coming thick and fast, and we've just had the first cluster of test events, which included um, rowing, canoeing, BMX, and several other sports. Um, and it was just interesting and useful for us, both you know testing out our um, teams, um, our um, protocols and procedures, our drug packs, our medical records, um, and and uh, you know practical things like the procedures for evacuating people off the field of play. Learning in beach volleyball that the um, scoops we're going to use don't actually clip together properly because of the sand, so we have to modify our uh, our uh, methods of taking people off the field of play. What are some of the experiences that you've gained from the test events? The um, most useful thing is working with our volunteers and uh, that's been really a great reassurance because the uh, volunteers are first of all experts and secondly fantastically enthusiastic about the games Um, and just about being there whether it's a really busy test event from the medical point of view like BMX where we had uh, a large number of injuries or relatively quiet like flat water canoeing where um, it's it's a relatively safe sport um, but there's always ways we can improve. Um, and for instance, in flat water canoeing, we um, finessed the way in which we would extract anyone from the rescue boats. Um, so we can do that really quickly. We've been looking at all our um, equipment. That, there's a challenge because obviously people come from all sorts of different backgrounds and they're used to using different equipment. So we'll have a standard equipment at every single venue. Um, so people can move from one to the other. And getting our volunteers used to that, uh, making sure we have enough but not a ridiculous amount because we're carrying it around our backs most of the time, and the type of medication we have in the Athlete Medical Centre. So it's been very useful. Richard, we'll focus on doctors who volunteered for the London Games. Did you get a good response? We got a fantastic response. Back in the middle of last year, there was the opportunity to apply as a so-called games maker. There were a quarter of a million people who applied as games makers and 19,000 of those put down medical services as their area of expertise and many thousands of those were doctors. So in our own world of sport and exercise medicine, we've got well over 200 sport and exercise medicine doctors, which is more than we need, but we will do our utmost to use all those doctors because obviously we need cover of the field of play as well as the athlete medical centers, as well as the polyclinics. And what's the preparation and involvement for someone who is a games maker? Um, They they will be encouraged to um, take part in the test events, but that's not an absolute requirement. Um, And uh, then there are a minimum of three days of training, which involves um, generic training um, about the Olympics and Paralympic Games. Then it's more specific training about all our policies and procedures and how we're going to work things in medical. And then the last day is venue-specific training and role-specific training as well. Um, So I think we're actually going to be quite hard pushed to get all the training we need into the three days, but they will be expected as games makers to give three days of training and then at least 10 days as an actual volunteer 
um, during the games or the lead up to the games. And they get well paid for that, don't they? Uh, fantastically well paid, yeah. <laughs> no, um, I mean, it's a tradition of the Olympics that medical personnel who volunteer do it on a voluntary basis. Um, and I know it's ironic because for many years, I and others in this country have been fighting to make sport and exercise medicine not just a voluntary pastime that doctors do because they're interested, but an actual properly recognized, properly rewarded, proper career. And I think we've made great strides in that direction. And I have to say, I think the Olympic movement have contributed to that. They, they have an important role to play in uh, sport and exercise medicine becoming a recognized speciality in the National Health Service. But it has to be said that, you know, the um, Olympic Games just could not afford to pay all the doctors and other medical staff um, properly as, um, as professionals. Um, it would be a, a huge extra expense. So we'd, we rely on the fact that this is a unique one-off um, event. It's not going to come to the UK again in most of our working lifetimes. Um, and um, as the number of volunteers we've got shows, um, colleagues are, are, are really very eager to take part and, and willing to sacrifice holiday, take unpaid leave or get, take sabbatical or somehow make it. And Richard, give the listeners a sense for the magnitude of the Olympic Games. Yeah, people listening to this may have been involved with World Championships or World Cups. And one good way of looking at the Olympic Games is that it's at least 26 World Championships all rolled into one, all happening at the same time, because there's 26 Olympic sports. And there's uh, 10,500 athletes, it's about 4,500 in the Paralympics. Um, but again, they're only a small part of the, the total number involved, because in the Olympics, there'll be pretty well a quarter of a million people with some sort of accreditation around their necks. And then millions of people who come as spectators as well. And that's why it's just an enormous logistical challenge for any organizing committee. And of course, you're responsible for spectator coverage ultimately as well, aren't you, Richard? Um, yes. Um, I mean, obviously, I have fantastic medical manager, uh, Pam Venning, and David Seidman, who's our emergency uh, manager, who um, has experience of looking after crowds, because it's not something that many of us in sport and exercise medicine do on a regular basis. And when it comes to you know potential major incidents, the resilience that we need um, because of all these large profile events taking place. But it is, uh, yeah, it is a big responsibility. But uh, I'm comfortable because we've got fantastic people looking after it. Richard, tell us about the polyclinic. Many people haven't been to Olympic Games and uh, don't see that on television that much. So what is it like? Give us a bird's eye view of the polyclinic. Yeah, yeah. well, the, the polyclinic is special. It, I, would, I often talk of it as the jewel and the crown of our um, medical provision. The uh, polyclinic is like a mini hospital within the Olympic Village. Um, it's basically primary care, but it overlaps into some secondary care as well, depending on the organizing committee and how they, uh, they put it together. But we will make every effort to have as many services as we can within the polyclinic so that the, the teams, the team doctors and their um, physios and, uh, and the athletes and support staff don't have to go to a local hospital unless um, there's something uh, that, that is very major and we can deal with most, thing, most things in the polyclinic which is far more efficient from the team's point of view. So we end up having very extensive imaging, MRI scan, CT, ultrasound, x-ray, pathology tests, dental, optometry, a small A&E. At our polyclinic we're going to have um, a three-bedded ward where people can be observed 
Um, it's not an isolation ward, but just if we need to keep an eye on people. And obviously there's the sport medicine, there's podiatry, there's lots and lots of physiotherapy, massage, osteopath, chiropractic. And so it's quite an extensive list of services. It's pharmacy, that's a very big thing for us, getting the pharmacy right. And that's an important service to all the team doctors. And in fact, when you look at the statistics um, from previous games, over 90% of athlete care takes place in the polyclinic. What are the highest demand services that actually get provided during the Olympic Games? Certainly in the polyclinic, we're looking at athletes, which are our priority, um, all those many other groups that we're looking after from uh, you know, Olympic family through to support staff, technical staff, all the judges, etc. Um, biggest use is of dental and of optometry, and physiotherapy is big as well. Unfortunately, a lot of um, athletes and their immediate support staff um, come from countries where I don't think there's great dental care so there is a need there, and the optometry is mostly about glasses and uh, contact lenses and things like that. More and more teams do bring their own physiotherapists, so um, one would expect the demand for physiotherapy to reduce, but it doesn't seem to. It does seem to be still a very required and busy service at the game, so we'll have extensive physiotherapy as well as the uh, chiropractic and osteopathy if teams want that. And what about massage and soft tissue therapy? We're, we're very lucky because we've got a, a really quite big polyclinic. It's going to be used in um, legacy um, as a primary care center, and that means we've been able to put massage actually within the polyclinic. And I, I'm really pleased that Lynn Booth, who's our chief physiotherapist, will, will be able to keep a really close eye on the masseurs work closely with them so that we don't get confusion you know when someone actually might need treatment rather than massage the the, the physiotherapist and the and the masseurs are, are interacting very close they know what each other are doing they can refer backwards and forwards easily oh, it sounds like it's gonna be fantastic for the athletes um, Richard is there anything different about care in the venues how does that look compared to the polyclinic the uh, the venues all have an athlete medical center and they'll also have a spectator medical center as well, completely separated. You know, everything's separated by security accreditation. So the majority of people will only have access to the spectator medical center, but uh, immediate team support and the athletes themselves will be able to get to the athlete medical center. And that's really for emergency and immediate care. So in all the athlete medical centers, be a sports medicine doctor um, and physiotherapist, masseur, Sometimes uh, one other person in BMX will have a, um, a group of four, like a small A&E. So it will be a bit sport dependent as well. Um, there'll be small pharmacy in those athlete medical centers and um, usual emergency equipment. And then out on the field of play, there'll be teams, again, with the relevant skills. So it'll be sport medicine and emergency care uh, with uh, paramedics, nurses, or, and or physiotherapists so that we can deliver the sort of uh, immediate care that might be needed. And it really does depend on the sporters whether those teams are going to be busy or not. The immediate response to any sort of incident is, is very important, and then um, appropriate backup as quickly as possible. And people probably don't know that it's a, at least a seven-year process and even earlier given that you worked on the bid, Richard. Yeah, that's true. It is an incredibly long time, but it sounds trite to say so, but it accelerates so that uh, as you get nearer to the game, suddenly you know, time seems to disappear. So I was the Chief Medical Officer for the British Olympic Association when we were uh, bidding for the games. Um, a uh, hockey goalkeeper just retired from the games called David Luckus was in our basement at the British Olympic Association putting together the plan and he worked incredibly hard to produce this fantastic plan that then got approved by government, by the British Olympic Association itself and by the other stakeholders 
and uh, then that led to the bid. The IOC came over for the assessment in February 2005, so I stood up with uh, Liam Donaldson, who was the chief medical officer um, at that time, and we made all the promises um, about uh, you know, how fantastic the care would be, um, the fact the National Health Service um, would support the games, um, that it was the place to go in the case of uh, urgent illness or injury, which I think it is, and uh, that sport and exercise medicine had been uh, made a speciality uh, within the National Health Service, it had been the day before. Um, and I think all those things together really reassured the IOC that both medical and, in fact, anti-doping services were going to be of the, the very highest quality. Um, and um, I feel that's why we run, won the bid. <laughs> Absolutely. No, congratulations. <laughs> And just to be clear there, sport and exercise medicine specialist status came through the day before the IOC were coming to look at the medical plan for the Olympics? Correct, yes. Yes, in February 2005. So it was fantastic timing. It was really interesting because it was um, Richard Caborn, who was the sports minister then, who was really on the government side, the, the, the person pushing it with the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. And it had been trying for ages and suddenly over the two years, 2003 to five, it started coming together. I think the fact that it was exercise medicine, not just sport medicine, sport and exercise medicine. And the government really got hold of that and realized this could be a, an answer to a lot of problems we have in our National Health Service. It's fantastic how a crisis can uh, be a catalyst like that. So good lesson all around. And it does bring up the issue of the exercise medicine and the legacy. Tell us about the legacy in the plan for involvement of the regular public in yeah. I mean, it is a huge challenge, isn't it, getting legacy out of the games? Because undoubtedly, working for LOCOG, our focus has to turn more and more towards actually delivering a successful games. And unless we deliver a successful games, we won't get any legacy at all anyway. I mean, LOCOG have been fantastic at making sure that there are no white elephants, um, which there have been at some previous games, and really conscious of the whole agenda of making sure it's as green and efficient as possible. But from the point of view of sport and sport and exercise medicine, we promised that sport and exercise medicine would be um, promoted in the UK and we would create a center of excellence. And that is just about to happen. I think sport and exercise medicine, you know, we've got um, lots of registrars now training sport and exercise medicine. It's a huge problem that there are not enough consultant posts in the National Health Service but a few are just appearing now, so I'm hopeful. And um, a centre of excellence is like to be a virtual centre of excellence, encompassing three or four centres around the country. And there's a chance we might get the IOC involved with that, and that would be a lovely and fantastic legacy from the Games as well. And then the challenge of getting everybody exercising. Nobody's able to show that an Olympics actually stimulates more people to exercise in the population. And it's accepted that during the Games themselves, you actually have fewer people exercising because they're all wandering around watching the games or sitting down watching the games. There is a Wimbledon effect each year in the UK with Wimbledon where more people pick up a tennis racket and go out and play tennis. Uh, I think there's a real opportunity to have a, a games effect with all that number of sports there are um, to get young and old really uh, enthusiastic about taking exercise. I think the Olympics will be a stimulus but it's not the only answer and it's one of those legacies that will continue on afterwards, combination of the exhilaration and excitement and um, inspiration of the games um, and the fact you've got a physical legacy left there from the facilities that are, that are, that are there afterwards with, a, I think, will be a most beautiful Olympic Park. It'll be you know, fantastic for the people, particularly of East London, uh, to have that on their doorstep. That's a great summary, Richard. As we come to the end of the 
bit about the Olympics. Um, maybe just give us a preview of some of the tourist icons that the venues are built around. What will we we see on television? The Olympic Park is built. Uh, on a what was a very deprived part of East London, and uh, that was part of the impetus for doing that. Uh, there are some events taking place in central London, which will really show off the fantastic and famous landmarks we have in London around Hyde Park, um, uh, around the Mall leading up to Buckingham Palace, and uh, and I think as you see the runners and the cyclists moving around uh, London, television cameras will pick up fantastic sights. Um, and, and it'll be a great place for people to watch, you know, the triathlon in the middle of Hyde Park on the Serpentine. And although, you know, a lot of people haven't been able to get tickets, and there are, there are a lot of events where people will be able to watch those events without a ticket. Richard, you wear another hat as the chair of BASM, and that brings us to um, young sports clinicians as well. So let's uh, begin with the young sports clinicians in the context of the Olympic Games. If someone wants to be the Richard Budget of the Olympic Games in 2036, what sort of career plan, how do they do that? You know, it's getting better and better. In, in my day, a long time ago, there was no such thing as a speciality of sport and exercise medicine. Um, there was a, a brilliant diploma I was able to do at the Royal London Hospital, and that sort of sparked me off. And I was lucky enough, uh, having an Olympic gold medal does help, but I was lucky enough to get a job with the British Olympic Association and, uh, and work part-time with them and slowly built myself up into full-time sport medicine. Now people can obviously qualify as a consultant in sport and exercise medicine, a specialist recognized in the same way as if they were a rheumatologist or a spiritual physician or a neurologist and work NHS or privately or both. The majority of the registrars in training are signed up as volunteers. Um, they will be able to get, um, if they apply for it, out of program experience. So they can take four or five weeks out of their training to be at the Olympic Games and those that have helped us in the test events have been universally fantastic doctors. They're our future sport and exercise medicine consultants, so we'd expect them to be really very, both very competent and enthusiastic. It's a great resource for us, and I think it will obviously be a, I mean, everyone uses this term, but a, a once-in-a-lifetime event for them as well. And what about someone starting off, so they're in medical school and they're thinking of doing sports medicine, what would you recommend? Going back to my uh, position as chair of BASM, that's the British Association of Sport and Exercise Medicine, we are the membership organization for any doctor interested in sport and exercise medicine, uh, are just doing it as a, as a side interest or a, a full specialist or just thinking of developing their interest in it. And lots of medical students are keen to find out more about sport and exercise medicine. There is student membership available and many of them do come to our conference and obviously the next one, UK SEM, is in end of November in Excel. But I think it is a difficult decision for students at the moment. We just don't know how sport and exercise medicine is going to develop as a speciality, whether the NHS are really going to take it on board, whether the purchasers, because we're, we're moving to a new system, there's lots of flux in the UK uh, on the way that um, services are going to be purchased by GPs. So it needs um, GPs to purchase sport and exercise medicine services. And many of us are really hopeful they will because you know, it spans both primary and secondary care. We're ideally placed to be there, both hospital and primary care based. But I think junior doctors have to make the decision, are they going to go down a career route into, say, general practice, being a general physician, and then have this as an interest, or even an orthopedic surgeon or other surgeon have this as an interest, or do they want to go really full-time into sport and exercise medicine? And both are, are there and uh, available. 
and I think it's a it's quite a personal decision as to what people want to do because uh, unlike some of the more established specialities, there aren't long-term established posts in sport and exercise medicine yet. No, that's a universal problem in in all countries, but yeah. it's also the excitement of being in a field that's novel and many opportunities. Richard, why should someone at any stage of their career join VASM? Um, it, it is the membership organisation so that uh, you are part of a group of doctors and physiotherapists and others, um, but particularly doctors who are really interested in developing sport and exercise medicine. Um, not just for the people who are specialising in it all, all the time, but those who are covering a local team or just interested in, in uh, using exercise as a therapeutic tool or uh, looking after the musculoskeletal injuries in their practice. Um, and the, the primary role of BASM is actually education. We, we've, we've managed now to have a speciality, so we've got a faculty of sport and exercise medicine. It's the faculty who sets standards, but it's BASM who actually are most responsible for education and taking people through from a very basic level through to an expert level. Um, and I suppose the jewel in our crown from BASM's point of view is the annual conference, um, which is now called UKSEM. And the other reason for joining BASM, of course, is that our journal is the British Journal of Sport Medicine. BASM half owns that journal, and as a member, you receive that as a hard copy as well as having access online. So that's a fantastic bonus, and, and I think we're, we're hugely fortunate to have that strength behind us. Richard, how does someone go about doing that? How do they actually get into BASM if they want to join up today? All right, uh, ju they just need to look up on the, um, the website they can send their details in and join online. And there, are, there is student membership, and that's growing. Um, as more and more students are interested, um, when you qualify, you can become a member as a doctor. And it puts you in touch with a whole, with a whole group of a 1,000 other doctors who are interested in sport and exercise medicine. I'm just thinking about that. I guess at the local events, is it broken down by local region, BASM? There is a, a regional structure, but that's not as relevant as it used to be. There are a number of local courses in sport and exercise medicine run by individuals and clinics. So we really focus on courses, taking people through a structured program, and, uh, and then on the main conference itself. If people look on the website, there are a number of resources that BASM have, and if you're a member, you can use those. And I think if you're going to develop expertise in a career in sport and exercise medicine, any um, doctor will find it fantastic help. And let's talk about the UK SEM conference before we, we leave it, the UK Sport and Exercise Medicine Conference in Excel in November. What's the draw for that, Richard? I think it is not only the biggest, but probably the best sports medicine conference we've now got in the UK. Um, and really many thanks to our education committee and to Andy Franklin Miller who heads that up. It's got a number of parallel um, streams. It's more and more reflecting the multidisciplinary team that treats those who are exercising and athletes. Um, so that there's a, a really brilliant choice every day. You just look at the program and it's tremendously exciting. Um, and there's all sorts of other exciting things as well, you know, demonstrations of barefoot running and, uh, and uh, it's, it's going to look and feel good and feel exciting because um, there's some good sponsors and uh, we've sunk a lot of resource into it. So I think the quality of the speakers, the uh, number of people who are going to be there, which will probably be up to a thousand uh, um, delegates attending. If, you, if you're going to make the effort to get to something, I would say UKSEM is the one thing you need to get to. A very nice mix of 
elite athlete performance issues as well as injuries in public health, as I understand it, Richard. And I'll put in a plug for Andy Franklin Miller's podcast, which you can find easily on the BJSM homepage by clicking on the podcast list where you can see all the guests in one little tab on the right-hand side of that, that page. Richard, I know we're going to have to let you go to take care of all your tasks, but uh, I do want to just ask about, give, give the listener a snapshot to your clinic um, day, your non-Olympic um, part. Tell us about the clinic and what does your day look like? You know, like any sport exercise medicine doctor, I'm probably happiest when I'm actually seeing and treating athletes, whether it's uh, with a team on the field or, or in the clinic here at Bisham Abbey. So I'm fortunate enough to work for our English Institute of Sport um, and uh, sometimes I, I, I look back at how it was and think just how incredibly lucky our Olympic athletes are now because it is a brilliant multidisciplinary center with uh, doctors and physio strength and conditioning experts and um, uh, nutritionists and psychologists and, uh, um, uh, and all sorts of support, you know, great gyms and, and specific training facilities. So I'm here at Bisham where we've got a mixture of rowers and canoeists and hockey players and synchronized swimmers and, and others and some Paralympic athletes as well. That really keeps my feet on the ground as, as far as clinical sport and exercise medicine goes. Uh, and at the moment, I'm doing a day and a half here. Um, unfortunately, in December, that'll have to stop. I have to go full-time um, for the Games, um, although you know, I'm tremendously excited about that, obviously, um, for, for nine months leading through to the end of the Paralympic Games next year, and then hopefully back into uh, clinical sport and exercise medicine. Richard, you're also a terrific elite athlete, and uh, you never lead with that, but you had the opportunity to go to Los Angeles in 1984? Yes. I mean, obviously, that was really the start of my involvement with the Olympic movement, and uh, it couldn't have worked better. Um, so I was there with a young Steve Redgrave, and um, little did we know at the time that he'd go on to win four more Olympic gold medals. Um, but I went back to medicine, really, after those games, I had to do my house jobs, and then you just get sucked into the whole career of medicine. So uh, I never really seriously considered going for a second gold medal. Still row, um, uh, you know, at a master's level, but it's uh, it's much more recreational now. That sounds scary for the master's people. Some middle-aged doctor competing against you um, as a master's rower. But uh, so you've had 12 Olympic Games under your belt, um, which sounds like unbelievably perfect experiences the medical office of the London Olympic Games. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Richard, thanks for your time today. Um, always exciting to talk to you, and you've really given a sense of both the magnitude but the excitement of the next 12 months' work for you. As fans, we're looking forward to a great Olympic Games in London, and I'm sure that you will have and have already contributed to making it an extremely successful medical um, Olympic Games. Thanks very much. Thanks, Karim. <laughs> and you've been listening to Richard Budget, who's the Chief Medical Officer for the London 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games. Can I just remind you of the other podcasts on the BJSM homepage where you can listen to guests from all aspects of sport and exercise medicine share their wisdom. Updates about the BJSM blog can be followed on Twitter, where our handle is at BJSM underscore BMJ. Thanks for following the BJSM.